Good morning, church. My name is Ellie. Our first reading today will be Micah 5, 1 through 5. Our second reading will be Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now muster your troops, O daughters, or O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, a Rephathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, of ancient of days, or from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock on the strength of the Lord in the majesty in the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now our passage from Matthew. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, or Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chiefs of priests and scribe of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From, for from you shall become a ruler, whom will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained them for, from sorry, them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Ellie. For today, uh, as is always the case, by the way, always, but today in particular, I think it'll be good to have your Bibles open. Uh, if you want to just grab your Bible, open up with me to, to Micah chapter 5, and then thumb over to Matthew 2. We're going we're gonna to flip back and forth a little bit, uh, but that will help you and serve you well, I think, as we look to God's Word today. With that, let me pray, and we will get to it. Father God, having just walked through this weekend, uh, this week really of, of Thanksgiving, in some ways it does feel as if this is just but our first glimpse forward, our first uh, glimpse of longing for the, the Christmas celebration of the birth of your son. And yet, God, we pray that this passage, these passages would set the tone and help us, God, in the weeks ahead to long for this joyous occasion and celebration, help to shape us in the lives that we live here and now, 
as we celebrate Christ's first coming and as we anticipate his second. We love you, God. Help me now and be with us as we look to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you want for Christmas this year? This is a question we start to think about usually at least around this time. Uh, as many consider that question, of course, they may uh, come to mind a, a list of gifts they hope to receive uh, or at least a certain holiday experience that they always look forward to that they're waiting for. And without a doubt, uh, these Christmas traditions are a joy uh, to many of us. But I hope that we will see in the next four weeks through our Advent series uh, that in the birth of Christ, the scriptures are calling us to long for so much more than new stuff and warm, pleasant memories. Ultimately, Christmas is about God's entire story of redemption breaking wide open, finally, and quickly approaching its great climax in the death and resurrection of Christ. More than that, Christmas is about our deepest longings and our greatest needs being met in the birth of this one child. Now, if we don't feel we have many deep longings or needs, if we feel like we basically have all that we need at our disposal, then we will probably be much more willing to settle for the eggnog and the twinkly lights at Christmas. But I think most of us would agree uh, we need more than the eggnog and the twinkly lights this year. In so many ways, it seems as if the fabric of our society is being torn apart. In just the last couple weeks, uh, the memory of last year's violent protests in Kenosha came rushing back with the announcement of the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Of course, the many responses to that verdict also just further revealed our many divides. Then uh, the horrors of Waukesha and their Christmas parade last Sunday, we saw, were seared into our minds as we left our Thanksgiving uh, night. I'm sure you all read and saw as, and we watched on in a sense from not too far from a neighboring community as our neighbors attended a parade much like parades that we have all attended and some were run over for no reason by one angry man. Meanwhile, just zooming out, confidence in all of our largest and highest institutions is in a free fall. No one is satisfied with anyone's response to COVID-19 still. Everyone is confused about what the truth is and how to even know what the truth is after last year's election and everything that transpired from there. I think we still have some PTSD. We're just just bracing ourselves for what will come next in midterm elections and future elections. The eggnog and the twinkly lights and the Amazon orders are just not going to cut it this year. We need something more. Uh, we, we need an answer to all the corruption that we see. And thankfully, church, in the birth of Christ, this book that we are looking at today is happy to deliver. We're doing this Advent series really for the third time. The series is entitled, What Child Is This? And each week, we look at a different Old Testament passage that in some way points forward to and anticipates Christ. 
Then we'll fast forward and look to a New Testament passage, which clearly confirms for us, yes, in fact, that ancient promise was about him. The Bible is full of these incredible connections pointing us to Christ. I'm convinced the entire thing, all 66 books of the Bible, by God's design, are working together to point us to this Christ, this one who was born on that first Christmas. And the goal then of our series is that we would all begin to simply marvel as we behold just how glorious this child really is. It turns out our vision of Christmas, the popular vision of Christmas, it's not that it is too decadent. That's not the problem. It is that it's not decadent enough. It causes us not too long enough for things that are deep enough. Church, in Christmas, we have far more than we may have even bargained for. So first, in part one, we're going to see the Bethlehem-born child today promised We're going to look together at Micah chapter 5. If you would, again, if you're in the Pew Bible, that's page 778. Turn with me to Micah chapter 5. First, before we get to chapter 5, I want to just explain that the book of Micah was written during an especially challenging time in Israel's history. Uh, Much of the story of the Old Testament uh, documents God raising up Israel to be this great nation from basically nothing and, and against all odds, and most would agree that this nation reaches its pinnacle, its climax, during the reign of King David. By that point in their history, they had already escaped from slavery in Egypt. They had conquered the promised land. They had begun to sort of establish themselves, if you will, as a superpower in that region. But then, just a few centuries after King David, the entire kingdom was split in two. There was then a northern kingdom of ten tribes and a southern kingdom of two tribes. So this this kingdom that God had just spent the entire story of the Old Testament raising up was now corrupted, was now fractured, was now at odds. And it was during this period of history, uh, somewhere sometime in the 8th century B.C., that this book of Micah was written. And throughout the book, Micah's prophecies are mostly geared towards the corrupt leaders of Israel in his day. So if you're in the book of Micah with me now, I want you to actually turn back with me, if you would, to chapter 3. I want you to look with me at verse 9. Here's what the prophet Micah has to say to the leaders of Israel. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob. And rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and who make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, and yet they lean on the Lord and they say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, Micah says, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It's a pretty grim picture of this kingdom of God's which is marred by corruption, being torn down entirely. Now, much of the book, 
Micah is, is sort of anticipating and pointing to one theme in the book is a coming invasion from the Assyrians who were a neighboring enemy nation during this period of the divided kingdom, which brings us to chapter five. In our passage today, chapter five, starting in verse one, here's what God says to Israel through the prophet Micah. He says, now muster up your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, especially in the ancient world, but also today, when an enemy is so close that they can strike the leaders of a nation on the cheek, usually this means that the fight is all but over even before it begins. There is, there is no hope here. It's as if Micah is saying, listen, get your troops ready, Jerusalem. Uh, siege is coming, Jerusalem, but listen, the truth is it's all but here, and it does not look good. Then the tone of this book changes uh, pretty dramatically, actually. If you look with me at verse 2, Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Church, I want you to notice that even as God prepared to judge his people for their corruption and sin, even then he was also planning to send forth this ruler, even then, he was planning to send forth as ruler from of old to rescue his people. This is a strange God. He moves in mysterious ways. Micah even says it, though, this way in verse 3, if we continue, he says, Therefore he, that is God, shall give them up. Let's just understand what he's saying here. He's saying that God will allow his chosen nation even to be conquered and oppressed until the time, Micah says, when she who is in labor has given birth. That is, until this promised ruler who will be born in Bethlehem is in fact born in Bethlehem. Now, it's very interesting that this ruler would actually be born in Bethlehem because, frankly, by the looks of it in that particular time, Bethlehem was a particularly insignificant, small, kind of no-name town. It's certainly not the kind of place you would look uh, during a time of crisis when your enemy neighboring nation is sort of knocking at the door preparing a siege. It's almost as if I want you to imagine uh, China's armies, uh, just a formidable enemy for us today, are, are on warships headed towards our shores Meanwhile, our military scrambles to find a fierce and valiant leader in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, right? Sheboy, if you're from Sheboygan, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm just saying, it. of all places, right, we're going to find this, this guy to kind of lead the in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. But from you, oh, Sheboygan, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler. That's kind of what's going on here. And Bethlehem was known as the city of David uh, because David, Israel's greatest king, was born and raised there. 
Uh, but if you remember the story of David, that's kind of the point of his story as well. He was actually a very unexpected king, not the one you would have anticipated. He was a scrawny little shepherd boy from nowhere, and he rose to be the greatest Old Testament king of Israel. It seems like this prophecy here in Micah is almost intentionally worded, almost as if to suggest a new David would soon be born. A new David was coming to rescue God's people. And when he is born in Bethlehem, same town, the fortunes of God's people will change. They will change. They will no longer God's people will no longer be subject to corrupt leaders, whether that is from their nation or from an enemy invading nation. It won't happen anymore. Look with me at verse 3. Micah says, then, that is when this ruler is born in Bethlehem, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is quite a promise. This is quite a promise, especially as your enemy nation is knocking at the door, preparing for an inevitable siege. This is quite a promise. Now, after Micah, we know the northern kingdom was, in fact, overthrown by the Assyrians. People were sent off into exile. Then the southern kingdom was overthrown years later by Babylon. Then, after Babylon, the Persians overthrew the region. Then, after the Persians, the Roman Empire took over the region. And all along, for some 800 years, God's chosen nation, Israel, who used to be in power, was ruled by one corrupt leader after another. Until one day, yet another one of these corrupt leaders got word that a new ruler had been born from of old. In part two, we see here the Bethlehem-born child provided. This is where we fast forward to the New Testament. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one. This is where we see that it was, in fact, Christ who Micah was looking forward to. But first, before we get to that, I want to say it's almost as if, again, we are fast-forwarding through the redemptive history. We are moving from 8th century B.C. all the way to 1st century Roman Empire. And lo and behold, you guessed it, yet another corrupt leader was still in charge of God's people. This time his name was Herod. You got, we have to understand this. Church, in light of what we've just seen in Micah, God was still giving his people over to corrupt leaders, just as Micah said he would long, long ago, until this very moment when that all changed. One day, these wise men show up in Jerusalem. They're asking about the birth of this child who was born king of the Jews. Now, it's hard to say who these wise men exactly were. They're sort of strange figures in, in the scriptures that's kind of on purpose. They're sort of popping up here out of nowhere. But the question they even think to ask 
uh, should, in our minds, we should see here, be packed with irony. Because as we've just seen, Israel has not had a king. The Jews have been without a king for many, many centuries by this point. And apparently many of them were just, they were kind of okay with this arrangement at this point. Because I want you to notice it says that when Herod heard of the birth of this king, he was troubled. And it says all of Jerusalem with him was troubled. So we are seeing the same exact themes that we saw back in Micah's prophecy. We have a corrupt leader of an enemy nation who is lying and manipulating God's people for his own purposes, and yet at the very same time, God's own capital city, God's own people were corrupt. When their Bethlehem-born rescuer was born, they did not rejoice together. They were troubled by this. Could you just imagine? They had settled in to being ruled by these enemy nations as if... It's just, it's over. This is how it is. We don't, don't mess around with all that stuff. You should have noticed when, when Herod got this word, he gathers together uh, these, these people. It says specifically that he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. These were some of Israel's top religious and political leaders. Many of them would have sat on what's called the Sanhedrin Council. So of the Jewish local leadership, they were the top dogs who were responsible for basically negotiating peace with the Roman Empire, which ruled the entire area. I mean, the known world in many ways. But for that reason, many Jews who did long for a ruler saw these leaders as kind of sellouts because they're here trying to keep the peace with these Gentiles who are paying at charging them taxes to live in the promised land that God had given to them. Herod calls these people together and he inquired of them, it says, where the Christ was to be born. So Herod, he's pulling his Jewish buddies together, all these local leaders, and he's saying, listen, tell me, where do your scriptures say that this coming king is supposed to be born? Where, where is it? And to answer him, these chief priests and scribes quote what was then the 800-year-old prophecy from Micah. The prophecy is much older now, to be clear, but when they quote it here, it was 800-some years old. You may have noticed that when it's quoted in Matthew, it's not quoted in the exact same way. Matthew kind of summarizes the entire passage, if you will, but he also kind of restates this part about Bethlehem in more positive terms. Instead of saying that Bethlehem is too little to be among the clans, notice he mentions that they're by no means least among the tribes. It's very common in the New Testament when it refers back to Old Testament passages to basically paraphrase what's there. And yet, if you look in your Bible, chances are you'll see that cross-reference to Micah chapter five. This is clearly where the chief priests and scribes were pointing. The point is this. The answer to Herod's question is Bethlehem. The city of Bethlehem. That is where this ruler would be born. I also want you to notice that God is clearly orchestrating this entire thing. Herod tells these wise men, go, go find that king, come back to me, report to me where he is so that I can go. I want to worship him, right? We know, of course, as the reader, he wants to actually kill him to kind of cut off any hopes of a revolt from among the Jewish people. And so these wise men, they do go out. They're guided by a star. They find Christ there in a manger in Bethlehem. They fall before him in worship. And then look with me at verse 12. It says, and being warned, it says, being warned in a dream 
not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. This church, this is not just a random dream that just popped up in their minds. No, this is very intentional. They're being warned by God in this dream. He's saying, don't go back. That would be very bad. God is sovereignly orchestrating all of this, every step of the way. Now just consider, why? It's because the day that Micah had anticipated long, long ago had finally arrived. His Bethlehem-born ruler had finally come. Church, this is the child who was born that day in Bethlehem. This is the child we all long for and celebrate each year at Christmas. When Mary gave birth to Christ, he came forth from of old, from ancient days. He came forth to rescue us from all corruption and to shepherd us in the strength of the Lord. Church, this is what we see as we look at our two passages today. Jesus was born. He was born in obscurity even to rescue us from all corruption. Listen, he was not born into royalty. In fact, he was not even born in a proper house. Our rescuer came in a quiet, little, unassuming manger in a small and rural town. But listen, given all that he came to accomplish, given how long God's people had longed for him to come, that just makes this story all that much better. One scholar puts it this way. He says, the focal point in redemptive history is none other than the insignificant town of Bethlehem, showing that Israel's future greatness does not depend on a great human king, but on divine intervention to bring greatness out of nothing. Church, God saw fit to send forth his ruler in this way so that we would make no mistake about it. It was him who was doing the rescuing. It was him who was with us and at work all along. But what does all this mean for us this Christmas? I want to consider, I want to reflect uh, on, on that, and I want to just, even if I could, just suggest three applications of these two texts that we see today. The first application is this. You might not expect it, but it's this. We will be subject to corrupt leaders. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Sorry to deliver that news. Um, But I do just want to point out that it was God who gave his people over to corrupt leaders. I know that's complicated. I know there may be a lot of questions to untangle in there. All I want us to do is simply look at the text of scripture today and just to see this is a thing that he has done. It was all part of his age-old redemptive plan. Again, listen, this is a hard pill to swallow, but as you look at the scriptures and you consider these things, I, I just, I can't help but find it evidently true. Now, for many of us, the social and political climate has been so good for so long. We have experienced virtually no opposition, and we have had an almost universally peaceful and prosperous life. In some ways, I worry, though, we've begun to think that that kind of an arrangement is normal for Christians. 
that our nation just should be marked by strong Christian values, that we shouldn't have to deal with corrupt leaders who oppose us because of our rich Christian history. Now, that sentiment may be all over the place today. It, it is. But I think you will find it strangely absent from the scriptures. Nothing in the Bible would lead us to believe that we could somehow create an earthly nation, we could somehow be entitled to be ruled by just and godly leaders. If anything, the Bible tells us over and over again that until Christ returns to establish his kingdom here on earth, that is, just, that is not going to be a thing. Just think about it this way. If there ever was a nation that could have maybe expected to be free from the corruption of this world, would, do you think it would not have been Israel? They were hand-picked by God and raised up against all odds into a prosperous kingdom by God himself. God himself dwelt among them, and only them, by the way, in their very own temple. He gave them their very own law, just for them, written on stone tablets from heaven. God even promised to bless their nation and to be faithful to them as their covenant God. And what happened? Church, what happened? The people rebelled. Their prophets eventually were all liars. And their leaders were corrupt. Under those conditions... That's how it went for God's actual chosen nation. And as a punishment, God brought the entire nation to a screeching halt by handing them over to be ruled by other corrupt enemy nations. Listen, for almost a millennium, 800 some years. And so let's just consider in light of that, should we really be surprised when we are subject to corrupt leaders today? I can't help but wonder if we knew our Bibles a little bit more, if we had a bit more robust, a truly biblical doctrine of sin and all its complexities, and frankly, if we had a more honest, less rose-colored view of America, I don't, I don't think we would be so surprised, as if something strange or altogether unfamiliar were, were happening to us. God's people being subject to corrupt leaders, church, is, is not strange or unfamiliar at all in the pages of Scripture. It's not. The fact that most of us have spent our entire lives with very little to worry about socially and economically and politically, frankly, makes us outliers in the history of the church. Throughout most of Christian history, even in many places in the world today, Christians are not and have not been led by godly, moral leaders with strong biblical values. That doesn't mean we can't long for that. doesn't mean we shouldn't work to try and see that to the best of our ability. But in many cases, all of these brothers and sisters have been persecuted and oppressed for many years, just like our Bethlehem-born rescuer ultimately was in his earthly life. It's very important, I think, that we keep this in perspective as the picture may begin to change in ways for us, as it seems it very well may. As time goes on, we may become outcasts. We may be marginalized. More and more, our faith may put us in the crosshairs of a corrupt world. We need a category for this. We need a category for that. 
Now, if it does go that way, absolutely, we should lament this. Absolutely, like many and many of our brothers and sisters before us, we should cry out to God in prayer. I'm not saying this is fine and well, this is terrible, and yet I don't think we should be surprised by it. Our passage today and many others make it crystal clear we will be subject to corrupt leaders. I also want us to see in these passages that even when we are subject to corrupt leaders, Number two, God has not forgotten us. God has not forgotten us. I have to imagine by probably year, maybe five, six, seven hundred, God's people probably started to wonder if, they, if he had forgotten them. It's just very understandable, but we can see here he had not. He was working and he was with them all along. And in the same way, as we look on and see many troubling new developments in the world today, as Christians, we will be forced to respond, whether that be in public or even just in the private of our hearts. We have to do something with what it is we're seeing. Now, some will respond in anger, sort of beating the drums and rallying the troops for war. Some will respond in apathy, just kind of closing their eyes and their ears, just pretending, no, this is fine, everything's good, it's, don't worry about it, we're going to be okay. Some will respond in fear, subtly redefining the faith and wandering from the truth of God's word to make themselves more palatable to a corrupt world. I want you to see, though, in, in each of those cases, in each of them, it is tempting to respond in some way as if God has forgotten us. It's tempting to respond as if he is not with us, he is not for us, we have to take matters into our own hands, or at the very best, he's maybe just a distant creator, just waiting for this all to wrap up so that he can swoop in and judge us. But the birth of Christ tells a very different story. This birth of Christ tells us that God has not left us alone, no matter how much it may feel that way, to fend for ourselves in a corrupt world. Our God has come to get us. He has subjected himself even to our corruption, even unto death, so that we could ultimately be rescued and set free from it. At church, for that reason, however dark it may get, however long it may last, we can be sure our God has not forgotten us. The prophet Micah even, back then even, had this very same confidence. Let's just turn back to, to Micah, if you would. If you're in the Pew Bible, 781. Here's what Micah says in chapter seven, and this is how he ends the entire book. I want you to see the confidence he had in the Lord here. Look at Micah chapter seven, starting in verse 18. Here's how he brings this prophecy to a close. He says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Church, we need to hear this. 
We need to hear this especially today. We need this type of confidence in God, even as our world may grow dark. He does not retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. Church, he has not forgotten us. He is with us, even in the darkest of times. But where? Where should we look to find the comfort of Christ's rescue here and now when he's not with us? In what sense is Christ with us today, even as he reigns from heaven? The truth is he is with us right here in the gathering and the fellowship of his blood-bought people. We saw this recently in our series through Colossians that in one sense it's as if we are his Bethlehem-born body (laughs) here on earth. Church, it is by walking together in faith and love that we experience his fullness here and now. Let's remember that message of Colossians now. Now, for now, it's also true that we are called to fill up what is lacking in his afflictions. We are called to share in his sufferings. We get to be little ones, just like him. But thankfully, we get to be little ones like him together as members of his body. Church, as the world grows increasingly more corrupt and as the day of our Lord draws near, let's look to the rest of Christ's brothers who have been gathered in. Let's look to one another and let's rest in the comfort of our rescuer this Christmas, knowing that he has not forgotten us. He is with us, as he promised, to the end of the age. And finally, as we patiently endure life in a corrupt and fallen world, let's also remember this, that Jesus is our pure and perfect rescuer. There is nothing corrupt about him, nothing. Let's just consider again who exactly God has sent forth to rescue us from all this corruption. He did not send a mighty warrior angel with a heavenly army to wage war on this world. He didn't do that. He did not send a shrewd, savvy politician to hold our leaders accountable. He didn't do that. No, he sent us a baby. He sent us an infant. He sent us a helpless human child. And this helpless human child, by the way, was not born in the palaces of Jerusalem where he would eventually rise to power there and enjoy a life of luxury in the elite ruling class of Judea. No, God sent this child to us in a manger, in a manger. He sent him in the womb of a poor young Jewish girl engaged to a carpenter. Needless to say, our Bethlehem-born ruler stands in stark contrast to the leaders he came to rescue us from. The corrupt leaders of our world, they are harsh. He is gentle. The corrupt leaders of our world, they are proud. He is lowly. The corrupt leaders of our world will do anything for their own gain and for their own purposes. Even today, he came And he gave of himself for our gain and for our 
purposes. There is nothing corrupt about our pure and perfect rescuer. This little child born in Bethlehem would not have been what most Jews would have expected. In fact, he would not have been what many of them wanted, but oh, was he pure. And oh, was he perfect. And church, he was God's plan to deal with the corruption of our world. In the same way, because Christ is so unassuming, because he's so understated, because he doesn't go out of his way to, to blast us and get our attention, it is tempting for us today to think that, yeah, he's great and all, Christmas is very nice, but we need something better. We need something stronger to rescue us from this corruption. Have you seen the corruption of our world? Our leaders are protecting abortion as if it is now a human right. They're redefining gender and marriage and the family. Or our, our leaders are openly, morally bankrupt. They're not even trying to hide their depravity anymore. They use their words to lie and cheat and tear people down. And many people still go on promoting them. As the political temperature starts to rise, we can easily begin to think we need something more than this rescuer. We need something more than this Christ. We need power here and now. That meek and meager little baby is not going to do the job. We need a brazen politician to plead our case in Washington. We need to fight and resist all of this corruption. We need to take back control. But church, the birth of Christ tells us a very different story. God has very different strategies than we do for dealing with corruption. I want you to listen. I want you to hear me out here. Listen carefully. We do not need social or political power to overcome the corruption of our world. We don't need it. Our rescuer came forth from of old in a manger. We don't need it. He lived his prime adult years as a poor, wandering rabbi. We don't need it. He was despised and abused by those in power. He was not respected. We don't need that respect. Church, we've seen today that they wanted him killed the day he was born. We don't need social or political power. They're optional at best. You might even be able to make the case that our faith flourishes all the more when we don't have them. When we are not in social or political power, church, what we need are humble, repentant hearts that adore our pure and perfect rescuer. What we need are faith-filled hearts that look to Christ and Christ alone, just longing for his rescue. And we need, church, the patience to trust that he will return, that he will set all things right at just the right time. You may be thinking, oh, I thought Christmas was about celebrating that he already come. Now I, I'm kind of wanting him to, to come again, actually. That's great. You're finally understanding the point of Christmas. I want you to imagine being a Jew in Jerusalem just before the birth of Christ. I want you to imagine your ancestors have been subject to corrupt enemy nations for centuries. I want you to imagine it has been a hard life, you have seen a lot in it. 
You have longed with your family for Micah's prophecy to come to pass, just longing for better days like you have always read and heard about in the pages of your Hebrew scriptures. You did the best you could. You endured this hardship and you did it with great faith, trusting that the Lord would eventually provide this ruler to rescue you from all the corruption in our world. But after a long and painstaking life, I want you to imagine just before Christ is born in Bethlehem, you die. You pass away in the early morning and then later that night, the star appears in the sky. This is how it would have felt for many, many faithful Jews. I just want you to consider this is how it would have felt for every single one of God's children who were born before Christ. That they never got to see the miracles. They never got to hear his teaching. They never got to see the hope of his resurrection. God gave them instead a life of waiting and a life of longing in a corrupt world. Church, we are lucky that we have these scriptures to point us to our pure and our perfect rescuer. We are lucky. And yet sometimes this is kind of how it feels, is it not, even for us today? That we end up doing a lot of waiting for rescue. With many Old Testament prophecies, there is sort of a double fulfillment. I would say it's almost like if, if, if the prophecy is a trail, it kind of leads to this hill, and you first see, oh, okay, that's what this prophecy is about. But then as you get closer to the hill, you kind of, your eyes gazes up, and you see a colossal summit behind that hill, and you see, oh, that's what it was ultimately all about. In this case, in one sense, our rescuer has come. He's come from of old in Bethlehem. Pure and perfect. He is shepherding us, his church, even now in the strength of the Lord, and he is our peace. There's the hill. <laughs> in some ways, he has already rescued us. Certainly, in a spiritual sense, he has. Here's the mountain. In another sense, we still find ourselves here in a corrupt and fallen world, waiting for our final rescue, waiting for this mountain. When our pure and perfect ruler will return to judge all corruption once and for all and to establish his eternal heavenly kingdom here on earth so that we can finally dwell secure and his name can be truly made great to the ends of the earth, not just for an age, but forever and ever. For now, we take hold of our rescue by faith. And as Israel did for many, many years, we wait until the day we can rejoice at his second coming. We wait for the day when every corrupt leader will be made to bow before him like a footstool so that we can finally dwell secure and be at peace with our Bethlehem-born rescuer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the truth that it points us to. We thank you for the hope of Christmas, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go about our preparations, even today, our family, no, tomorrow, be cutting down a Christmas tree and putting it up and, and decorating that tree and getting ready with all the 
the wrapping and the scents and the smells and the tastes of Christmas, God, would those things for us be pregnant this year with deep longings for rescue? Would you open our eyes to the great hope that you've given us in Christ? Would you help us to cling to him this Christmas, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.